Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about the OIC meeting in Pakistan over Afghanistan's future, a grievance list issued by Russia to NATO, and a couple other things. All that and more coming up. get into the rapid fire news so courts in spain have ruled that 25 percent of classes must be taught in spanish this has caused major unrest in catalonia a province in spain that has traditionally held separatist um, leanings not quite enough to actually leave Uh, although some would say that they had a referendum a while ago and that that justified them leaving but it wasn't recognized by the Spanish government, so as of right now, they still remain a part of Spain. But uh, this ruling has reasonably upset people who want to leave Spain, uh, as they don't speak Spanish, they speak Catalan. That's their language, and so this ruling is basically um, the country that they want to leave enforcing their language over the secessionists uh so if you're from the point of view of spain this is natural and reasonable because we're all part of one country we should all speak the same language for purposes of cohesion but if you're in line with the separatists in catalonia you say this is an infringement on our culture um we should leave and this kind of reminds me of what happened in china where the chinese um, enforced their language. They enforced Mandarin in schools that were being taught in the autonomous region called Inner Mongolia. Inner Mongolia is sort of the mm, let's see, how do I put it? It's sort of the region of China that is along almost all of their border with Mongolia. Um, Mongolia's southern border with China. Uh, it doesn't go all the way over to like east or the west, but along Mongolia's southern border with China, that is the area of Inner Mongolia. Inner Mongolia is inside of China, not Mongolia. And ironically enough, there's more Mongolians living in China than there are in Mongolia. But in Inner Mongolia, the Chinese uh, autonomous region, China had tried to do the same thing, and actually not tried, they did do the same thing back then, and it caused similar outrage among the Mongolians living there, because they viewed it as an infringement on their culture, and China trying to stamp it out, and the Chinese point of view was, there is only one China, there is only one language. So not new this sort of thing isn't necessarily new um but it is one of those conflicting things that you see and in your view on it it's going to be based entirely on who you side with or who you sympathize with in my case 
I know how I'd feel if parts of my country decided they were just going to speak a different language and then got upset and we asked them to speak English. Because, you know, I speak English, so I'm going to need you to speak English too. So I, I can understand completely where the national governments come from on those issues. Yeah, and, but there's many who view things differently. But I'll, I'll leave that there. North Korea, on the other hand, on the other side of the world, it has begun mourning their 10th anniversary of Kim Jong-il's death. Kim Jong-il is the father of Kim Jong-un, the son of Kim Il-sung, the leader of the North Korean forces during the... Uh, the initial stages of North Korea's independence, he fought the Japanese during World War II, and probably a little bit before that. But, 10th anniversary of Kim Jong-il's death, and North Korea, in a particular uh, manner of mourning, they have decided that they have issued a 10-day ban on alcohol and, get this, laughter. That, that's where the peculiar part comes in. And uh, more, the most thing, what I can really say here is you, you leave it to North Korea to pop up out of nowhere and give us something to talk about, you know. And I was just talking about them last episode, but for very different reasons. Although I was more talking about the South. Uh, but Korea in general, I was talking about them last episode, get more on that. Uh, there, but uh, yeah, that's North Korea for you. Always an interesting place on the map to look at. Mexico has set to require visas for peace, not peaceful, for people coming into the country from Venezuela. Now, this is done to sort of stem the tide of migrants that are coming, trying to get to the United States, but they're walking, they're coming by land, so they have to go through Mexico to get there, and Mexico doesn't appreciate them being there illegally either. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure they are more upset than the Americans about the issue, <laughs> because they use up the amenities on their way to the United States, and as far as the Mexican government is concerned, they don't contribute much, um, other than straining their infrastructure, trying to get to a completely different country. So Mexico doesn't want them coming. And now they're cracking down. And back during the Trump administration, Trump actually worked with Mexico f for this exact reason. Mexicans and Guatemalans didn't want people crossing their country to get to the United States. And so he had a policy where they would enforce their southern borders, effectively pushing back the front line, if you will, on the issue. But now that that policy has sort of been abandoned on the United States front, you have countries like Mexico taking, basically taking this into their own hands and trying to get control of their borders again, which will, as a side effect, help the United States get control of its border. Although that remains to be seen, but this is sort of the path that we are now on. And we'll see how independent individual countries handle that situation on their own. 
Um, although I will add that it's probably going to create a little bit of beef between Mexico and Venezuela because it seems like they've singled out Venezuela. Um, and Venezuela's in a pretty precarious situation right now where they sort of, they have two factions that are fighting it out for legitimacy. Not quite literally fighting it out, although I'd say they're probably as close as they're going to be without actually being in a civil war. And while Mexico did host those two leaders, Juan Guaido of the non-Maduro faction and Nicolas Maduro of the, the government faction, Mexico did host both of them for talks, direct talks with one another. Um... But right now, it seems as though they're singling out Venezuela, so that could create problems. But again, we'll have to observe that one. Uh, Maybe Venezuela will just accept this for what it is. It's an immigration control policy, not something directed at them, but more so at the people moving through them and then trying to get to Mexico. So we'll see how this develops. And hopefully Mexico can maintain their neutral position between the two factions in Venezuela because that was pretty good thing having the two of them talk in a neutral setting so definitely want to keep that around Kosovo um back in Europe you know, we haven't even gone to Europe but well yeah we did go to Europe Catalonia but in Kosovo they have cut a deal with Denmark which have allowed the Danes to send prisoners to Kosovo because what Denmark did was they rented out 300 prison cells in Kosovo to house their inmates, as Denmark's prison system is currently at capacity. Now, what I want to say here is that, essentially, Denmark is giving de facto recognition to Kosovo as a sovereign entity. Even if that wasn't the intention, um... But that's what they're doing. I'm pretty sure Serbia is not happy with this because a deal like this isn't exactly something you do with a country whose legitimacy you call into question. Um, But what we have here is the legitimization of Kosovo as a sovereign entity. And to be fair, Denmark and NATO in general already view Kosovo as a sovereign entity rather than just a province of Serbia. But a move like this really cements that in actions, whereas just saying we recognize this country as an independent country is really just words. There's not necessarily anything to back it up. Russia could say that they recognize Texas as an independent state, but if they don't do anything with Texas specifically... Well, then it's kind of just words. But I digress. So that's just one of the things I've taken away from that situation. And it is a peculiar story in and of itself. But I'll move on. We're going to go to France now. Who has done a little bit. I have like three things on France right now. Uh, Make that four things on France, so I guess we'll be talking about France in a little bit. I'll, I'll do that all together. I'm going to skip this for now, and we'll come back to France. 
Women in Afghanistan continue to struggle with the Taliban over what rights and freedoms they'll have under the new slash old government. If you remember, Taliban was in charge, then they weren't for 20 years, now they're back. So, new slash old, yeah. The Islamic Emirate has agreed to, um, they've agreed to relax their former policies, but they haven't agreed to full freedoms for women. Now, the women obviously want their full freedoms that they had before the Taliban came back to power. The Taliban does not want them to have that, so there's a struggle there, but the, the Islamic Emirate has recognized that they can't go all the way back, at least not right now. They'll probably try to over time, but for now, they feel that they have to make the concession. And maybe it's just a change in their own personal ideology as well. Over time, they've just accepted what has been done under the U.S.-backed Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. And they now say to themselves that, pragmatically speaking, it's not likely we're going to be able to reverse that on a short timetable. Or maybe they won't be able to reverse it at all. And they may or may not have accepted that as the case. So they're taking this middle-of-the-road path, which is close to what they want, but not quite all the way. And having that compromise does bring people who were opposed to you to your side. Because it makes you seem less radical to people who, uh, an entire generation, who have grown up under Islamic Republic rule rather than Islamic Emirate rule. So, Taliban, the Afghanistan, uh, goodness, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, even months after its establishment and its reestablishment, I should say continues to be yet another one of those interesting places on the map to look at. Uh, and we'll see how they go with this struggle and who wins out in the end, or if they have an, a formal compromise and both sides sort of leave the issue alone, or if we'll see if the Taliban gradually ramps up the pressure and they get women to go back with no freedoms we'll see where it goes and i brought this up because for week ever since the fall of kabul there's been endless talk of human rights and abuses and women's rights in afghanistan and i sort of glossed over it because it wasn't necessarily geopolitics per se as much as it seemed to me at the time americans and European leaders really just complaining about the ideology of the Taliban. So I glossed over that along with a number of other things um, like human rights, because as it stood at that time, the Taliban hadn't violated the human rights at that time. So I gave it time. Yeah, I'm saying time a lot, but I've given it time. So now we can sort of see where they're at and what they've done so far. And what they've done so far is they've relaxed on a lot of the things that people have been complaining about. And they'll probably be just another country in the not too distant future. Once people sort of let the anger of losing die down, 
and maybe the, the Afghanis will get their foreign reserves back as well. But that also remains to be seen. But uh, I'll continue to observe this interesting spot on the map. Uh, yeah, that's all I can say about Afghanistan right now. They're in a very rough period of change right now. And change in sort of the backwards sense, where they're going back to what they were 20 years ago. And the people that were in charge are now also simultaneously changing to what they can feasibly do now, which is not quite what they wanted. So watching them make that adjustment is very interesting. And I'll continue to watch it. And we'll watch it together. So we'll we'll see what happens to the women of Afghanistan. And I'll try to report on it when something major happens. Meanwhile, the U.S. passes its defense spending bill. The military budget is now $770 billion. It only ever grows. You know, one of these days, I feel like it should get a little bit smaller. But um, that's what I want. We'll see if I ever get that. Now we'll talk about France. Uh, France, they've cracked down on travel between them and the U.K., so the row between them continues. The French military withdraws from Timbuktu, a city in central Mali. Uh, this is sort of in the Sahel area where they've been fighting what I call the Second Great African War. And they're pulling out of this city now. Emmanuel Macron has met with Victor Orban. Emmanuel Macron, the leader of France, has met with Victor Orban, the leader of Hungary, both of them are facing elections in the not-too-distant future, so it's probably a political move to boost PR relations for the two of them. And we'll see if it succeeds, because uh, only the election results will tell. And last but not least, the second French parliamentary delegation makes a five-day visit to Taiwan, meeting with Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen in the process. China outraged. So that's the rapid fire news, and we'll get into the larger topics in just a minute. Alrighty, let's get into the meat of this episode. Pakistan called for the members of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation to meet in Islamabad last week. And Pakistan did this to discuss the situation in Afghanistan and what their responses to it ought to be. It was agreed to establish a humanitarian trust fund for Afghanistan under the Islamic Development Bank, and as I had anticipated, the issue of Afghanistan's billions in frozen assets and reserves was brought up, and as an important means of helping the country, it was resolved by all of them, to lobby the international community to get America to release Afghanistan's frozen assets. So, what I took away from this was that there was a very, very heavy emphasis on the economy of Afghanistan as the key to helping them. So, number one, they were going to create a fund for development of Afghanistan. Number, excuse me. Number two, 
they were going to try to lobby to get America to release as Afghanistan's money that they already have, but are being denied. And number three, they want to avert economic disaster in Afghanistan. So they want to use those first two to stimulate growth and economic activity within Afghanistan to avoid a greater disaster from their economy, which is kind of faltering at the moment. That seems to be my takeaway from this meeting. And I gotta say, it's very interesting that it happened at all. Because Afghanistan swapped hands from the Islamic Republic to the Islamic Emirate back in August. at the Towards the very end of August, but back in August, this is what happened. And so we're in almost the end of December now. Roughly, what is that? Four months? Yeah, four months. So four months, roughly, since the Taliban has retaken power in Afghanistan. And now this meeting is called. And that's very interesting that Pakistan would choose now to do so. Um... But yeah, very interesting that it was called at all. There are lots of other countries, Muslim nations, that have crises of their own. But this meeting was called for Afghanistan. And, uh, I mean, it's a good thing, really, that countries take initiative to help other countries. And to get other countries to help them help other countries. Very interesting, to say the least. That this organization that I previously did not know of uh, was the organization called upon to act in Afghanistan's name. Because Afghanistan is in a pretty rough spot. We knew Afghanistan was getting help, tacit help from like Russia and China and even Iran at, at a certain point. And we knew that they had basically been accepted. We knew the Taliban had basically been accepted as the legitimate government by all of their neighbors, Russia, China, Iran, Pakistan. And due to the geography, that was really all that they needed. But to see Pakistan go up and beyond just being a solid neighbor and to recognizing the changing government of the Afghani people to lobbying to get help Afghanistan uh, that's pretty big a very and I, I guess I'll just say as a side note it's a pretty big change in Pakistan's foreign policy as well where they've been content to doing nothing and letting America do whatever it wanted and letting China do whatever it wanted and being pathologically hostile to India so India could do nothing let alone what it wanted but to see Pakistan take the lead here and go from doing nothing to something pretty major is actually pretty interesting as well. And we'll see what comes of this. I mean, I'm sure Afghanistan and the people there and the Taliban, they're not going to say no to this money, probably. And they're definitely not going to say no to their frozen assets getting unfrozen and be and able to be accessed again, because that would help as well. And I go back to my point that I made before. It's their money. Let them have it. If they blow through it like a like a 
credit card and they end up in a really rough spot after that, well, so be it. That was their money and they spent it how they wanted it. And the, the rest is theirs too. The consequences, the benefits, whatever it may be, that's theirs too. But let them have their money. But for now, we have the money being kept away from them. But Afghanistan has lots of friends now who are going to try to get them their stuff back. So, it must be very nice to be Afghani today. Or maybe it's not, and I'm just overhyping this, but <laughs> I'm getting a bit desperate for things to talk about. But this was one of the things that I noted and was committed to keeping up with. Uh, I th thought I missed it last week, but I looked at the date and it, it was this past week when the meeting took place. I believe it was Friday or Sunday. I mean, Friday or Saturday. One of the two. But the episode I did the week... At that Monday before the Friday and Saturday, I thought I missed this meeting and I was panicking. I'm like, oh goodness, I'm going to be a week late on my delivery of this. But no, it happened just a couple days ago, as a matter of fact. So, I'm right on time. And you know what? I'm perfectly okay with that. But anyway, the OIC has met. The Islamic community has decided that they're going to help Afghanistan in whatever way that they can, primarily economic, and we'll see if this is enough to help change things for the better in Afghanistan, especially for the Afghan economy. Now, we'll move on to Russia, as this week's update to the Eastern question, you know, as it it changes enough to where I have something new to talk about. And I'm starved of other news. So um, I'm talking about it a lot. That end, it's actually pretty important. Uh, these developments here. Because they concern lots and lots of people living primarily in Europe. But also people living in Russia and the United States. So the Russians have issued... What essentially amounts to a, gr a list of either requests, demands, uh, depending on where you stand on the issue. I, I've taken to calling it the grievance list and that Russia has issued to NATO. And it goes like this. Russia wants NATO to remove the troops, the forward presence battalions that they have from Poland and the Baltic countries. Russia wants NATO to cease military activity in Eastern Europe as well as in Ukraine. And this also comes in addition to the previous request that Russia was beginning to make. That request being that NATO agree to legal guarantees that it won't expand further east. And this is sort of the primary grievance list. I'm sure there's lots of other things the Russians would like to put on it, but these are the mainstays of their, uh, how do I put it, their dissatisfaction 
with NATO uh, at the current moment. So let's just take a look at all these. They want to remove the four present battalions from Poland and the Baltic countries. So basically they want NATO troops to get off of Russia's border. That's what that means. And But Poland is not a border state to Russia unless you're counting Kaliningrad, which is sort of a forward-deployed Russian position rather than the other way around. But Poland is, however, a border state to Belarus. And there is the kicker. The Union state, Belarus's borders, are Russia's borders. So they want, so Russia wants NATO troops off of their border. Belarus's border is effectively Russia's border. Well, guess what? That means they don't want NATO troops in Poland either. So they want that, and they, in light of that, they also don't want NATO troops in Ukraine because Ukraine also makes up a very large piece of Russia's border in Europe. So they don't want that. They want NATO to cease military activity in Eastern Europe. That's probably a direct call out to military exercises and training and military advisors being sent to Ukraine and ships sailing in the Black Sea because that's been happening periodically ever since the Crimea incident, which is what I call it, when the British sent the destroyer there and it almost got shot. It got shot at, but it almost got shot by Russian fighter planes. Ever since then, we've had periodic incursions by NATO naval forces into the Black Sea and even the Baltic Sea now. So you have that as a source of issue between Russia and NATO. Russia wants NATO to stop doing that. And that's really uh, them calling out the U.S. and Britain because they're the main culprits in doing that. Uh, but the military exercises and the deployment of troops in Eastern Europe is also uh, a grievance, as well as military advisors and weapons sales to Ukraine. They want that stopped as well. So they want to stop those and get NATO off of Russia's border. But then the third request, they want, well, the third grievance, I'll call it, they want NATO to agree to legal guarantees that there will be no more expansion NATO to the east, which means no more getting closer to Russia's border with NATO memberships. And that, that is, well, reasonable, I guess. Because from what I've been able to observe, there is no intention of making Ukraine an actual NATO member. That's what I've been able to observe. That's what people in Ukraine feel. And that's what people in Washington and in Brussels and in London don't want to say. But that's what it is. They have no intention of making Ukraine an actual NATO member. And they're just holding them in suspense and in limbo while making promises and sending token forces to make it seem like those promises are going to be kept. But I don't think those promises are going to be kept. And I say that we make it clear 
we're not going to defend them so that they can act accordingly and not screw themselves over by making false assumptions that if they fuck up, someone's going to be there to catch them. No, if they fuck up, no one's going to be there to catch them. And they'll probably fall right back into the Russian yoke. And granted, that's probably going to happen with or without Western support. But at the very least, the Ukrainians can course correct and, if necessary, make the process less painful. Or maybe even, you know, secure a peace with Russia where they accept the rebel republics, the one thing that they really, really, really don't want to do. But Ukraine gets to continue existing while not being in a state of war undeclared war with Russia and not being in a state of declared war between them and the rebel republics. That would be a thing. Would it be the most optimal thing? Probably not from the point of view of a Ukrainian. But if you're Ukrainian, you don't exactly have many options to begin with. So at the very least, you should be able to make an informed decision about those options and NATO and America making promises that they're not going to keep hinders the ability of NATO, well, not of NATO, of Ukraine, to make those sorts of judgments about their future. So, from my point of view, I say we let them know we're not going to defend them. They're not going to be a part of NATO. I don't see anything wrong with those legal guarantees that Russia is asking for. The other things, debatable. I can see where Russia comes from, but debatable. As far as we're not going to expand further east, well, that's highly reasonable, and I would agree. We're not. We have no intention of expanding further east. Uh, no real intention. It's not like Ukraine is not going to be a part of NATO. They're just not. So I don't see anything wrong with saying Ukraine will not be a part of NATO. Because that's the truth. Everyone knows it. Everyone who's honest with themselves knows it. I don't see what's wrong with saying it. On paper. So that you can de-escalate the situation. That is not the course that is being taken. Uh, in, because instead, uh, military officials all across Europe have been outraged by the idea, the very notion, that Russia would have the gall to talk back and say things that they don't like to hear, like, we don't want NATO forces in Ukraine, or we don't want Ukraine to be a part of NATO, or if Ukraine joins NATO, we're going to invade them. <laughs> because that constitutes a threat to Russian security, a threat that Russia doesn't want to tolerate. And naturally, the other side of this equation, the military officials in NATO, have taken to the Russia doesn't get a veto over what we do stance, and that only makes the situation worse. So, what we have here is really what I talked about before. Where it seems like we've we have NATO expansionism running hard up against Russia's red lines, but the difference here 
is that essentially now Russia's trying to put a restraining order on NATO and sort of turn back the tide of NATO's already established expansion in a de facto sense because they want the forward deployed battalions out of the member states of NATO that are on Russia's border. But to do that effectively pushes back the frontier of NATO. So Russia's gone from saying you can't cross this line to saying we're going to redraw the line. Here's here's a new line. It's 500 miles in front of our red line. We're going to call this the orange line. You're not allowed to cross this. We want we want you, we heavily advise you to stay on that side of the orange line. Don't get close to the red line because you really like to get close to the red line. This is the red line, don't cross. That's where we've gotten to. Now, Russia hasn't said anything about orange lines, but that's sort of the me doing imagery so that you can understand what I'm saying. But um, we've reached a new point where Russia is on the offensive here. Because that, that's what this is. Russia is is responding, but this is the first real offensive position that Russia has taken in a while. Now, people constantly claim that Russia is attacking, attacking, attacking the West. But really, Russia's been responding, responding, responding. Now we have Russia seizing the initiative and going on the offense here, making demands of NATO and the United States. That's a very key difference. And again, rather than saying, you can do what you want, just don't go to the, just don't cross this line. Instead of doing that, they are now trying to push back the the progress that NATO has already made. And we'll see who wins out on this, because something's got to give, and... Again, my assumption, my belief is that Ukraine's going to give first and then someone else who probably isn't Russia is going to give as well. And we'll see what that leads to. Probably conflict, but only time can tell. That's the Eastern Question update. And last but not least, I uh, I guess we'll talk about the Iran nuclear deals. Uh, only a little bit. I'm actually not prepared to talk about this. I've just thought about it right now, so I've decided I'm going to chit-chat about it a little bit. Uh, maybe we'll talk more about it in the next week's episode, because I've, I've only been passively paying attention to this, so I don't have as much to go off of as I usually would for my larger segments. But, yeah, the Iran nuclear, they have the talks have reached a standstill, and while they've actually been at a standstill for a very, very long time, <laughs> they've been in stalemate ever since I brought them up way back when I first did the podcast. But now we've reached a point where the U.S. and Israeli diplomats are now losing patience and are even threatening violence against Iran for not cooperating and you see the warmongering there you also see the the war drums playing where the news is playing up the threat of an Iranian nuke and they're they're 3 weeks away 
they're only a couple months away. They're insert this many weeks or months away from getting a nuke. Um, so that that that's what the situations come down to, and I am unsure of where it's going to go. I I can't tell you exactly where Iran is in the process of getting a nuke. I can tell you that they have plenty of reasons to want one. I I can tell you that. I can tell you that the nuclear weapon isn't as important as the delivery system. I can tell you that as well. But I cannot tell you if they even are making one at all. I I just can't. I can tell you that they're probably going to have an industrial revolution based off of the nuclear power that they're getting. And I can imagine that as they continue, they'll even get Chinese investment to help them with that and with the infrastructure to connect the power stations to get the energy to where it needs to go. Iran is building up its base, and that threatens the status quo where Israel is on top. Israel is being ruthlessly, ruthlessly dragged down from its top dog position in the Middle East from matters and affairs internal, Palestine, elections, demographics, and external. You have international terrorism, which has been replaced. Well, international terrorism, civil wars, which are now being replaced with a new order under Iran with the support of Russia militarily and the support of China financially. Now, Russia doesn't support Iran militarily. They support Syria militarily. But you can see how that plays into each other and works. It really works. The symbiosis of the Russian-Chinese strategic partnership goes beyond Russia and China. It even extends into the Middle East on issues such as Syria and Iran. And that is a threat to the U.S.-led alliances of U.S. and Israel, the Arabian Shield, and they're clashing. But Arabia is out of the picture right now. They're reconfiguring their position in the in the region with the only holdout of their old position currently being their support of Yemen against the Houthis. Who are the Houthis are winning by the way. A lot slower than the Taliban, but they're winning. So, we will see where things go. Um, We'll see how the nuclear deal progresses, if it progresses at all. But we can see that things have reached a critical point where the, the people doing the talking are now tired of doing talking, and the people that want action are increasingly looking like they're going to get their way. Um, but we'll have to see how that goes as well. Because is I don't know if Israel is going to be able to continue getting away with assassinating leading Iranian officials. Eventually, Iran's going to strike back. And I feel that Israel's not going to be prepared for that. They're not going to be prepared for it mil- militarily or mentally, really. Because, again, they used to be on top. 
they're not going to be used to being the ones having to respond to these sorts of things. We'll see how Israel handles that new and changing dynamic of Iran being the dominant power in the Middle East. But that is all I have for you today. It's a bit of a shorter episode, but I am starved for geopolitical news. And we'll see if this week has anything interesting for us to talk about. I'll definitely be uh, doing a much more in-depth update of the JCPOA in the next episode, so that's something that I can talk about. But uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. We will definitely see what happens this week, and I will share my findings with you next week. On the next episode, on Monday. Ah, yes. But, that's all I got for you today. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing. And we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Hashan Wade. And you've been watching This Week in Geopolitics. It's just as simple as that. (laughs) But, until we meet again next Monday, Servus.